I'm Amanda Whiting, the deputy editor of Unheard, and I'm sitting in for Tim Montgomery, who's on vacation, and this is the Unpacked podcast. Sitting here with me is Peter, the author of our daily feature, Unpacked. Can you tell us a little bit more about what it is, Peter? Well, the idea of it is to feature some of the very best journalism in the world. Um, not all of it, amazingly, is produced by Unheard. Uh, a few other publications, you know, sort of managed to stick their oar in as well. And we want to bring that writing and those ideas to our readership. And um, in the column, I um, feature certain extracts and comment on them and expand or disagree or agree with some of the ideas. Okay. And rounding out this group of ragtag kids is our capitalism editor, Charlie Pickles. Hello. Okay, so let's get into it. We've chosen three uh, columns that Peter has written in the recent, I guess, in the last week to talk about today. And the first thing we're going to be talking about is loosening the metropolitan greenbelt would make Britain fat. Obviously, housing is a big topic in this country. It's rare not to see it on the front page of newspapers, and I'm sure we will again tomorrow with the rise in interest rates. So first of all, let's, what is the metropolitan greenbelt for our non-UK listeners? Okay, well, it's a planning zone um, which is situated all the way around London um, and it is an area which is highly restricted in terms of new developments. Um, Why is that? Well um, it's the idea that really London shouldn't continue sprawling outwards and so it has a really quite thick green belts. I mean, there's actually been something in some form going back a very long way, but it's only after the war that we really, or just before it, that we really created this sort of really don't build here zone. Um, And certain other cities in this country have similar zones as well. And we collectively refer to these as the Green Belt. Okay, and now there is discussion about building on the Green Belt. That's right, because um, the housing crisis is so severe, house prices are going so far ahead of um, people's ability to um, to, to fund a purchase that um, people are saying, well, you know, price it's a law of supply and demand. Um, we aren't building enough to satisfy demand and therefore prices inevitably go up. Um, So what can we do to make it easier to build more houses? Well, the most obvious, although not necessarily the most right thing to do, is to abolish the greenbelt and let areas that are already quite popular, um, that are magnets for for workers, um, build, get bigger, build more houses and this in theory should stabilize the prices. Right and so most of us have heard criticisms about the plan to build on the green belt but you sort of deliver a novel one which is that building on it is going to make us obese. Yes. What makes you think that? (laughs) Well there's some really good research and this is taken from an article um, by Fergus O'Sullivan for City Lab and he goes through various bits of research that show that um, if you plot the density of an area, that how many houses per square kilometre, against how fat the people are who live there, um, there's a kind of um, inverse relationship between mm-hmm. 
uh, density and obesity. And um, it's not a perfect relationship because in the least dense areas, countryside areas, actually um, obesity is a bit lower. But once you get to the sort of density that you might associate with suburban sprawl, that's where it peaks. And from then on, the more dense it gets, the more like a city centre it gets, the thinner the people get. And of course, all of this has been corrected for age and gender and things like that. Okay, so it's a uniquely suburban waistline sprawl. It seems to be, yes. That um, as our buildings spread out, so do ourselves. Um, which is, you know, might seem strange, but there's various explanations for that. There's a kind of difference, though, right, between um, saying whether or not we should build on the green belt, and then talking about the kind of planning parameters, if you like. So, so if it's a density question, then. Um, you can kind of separate out, well, sure, you, you know, it may be reasonable to build on the green belt. You've said we've got a housing crisis. We clearly need to massively increase the supply of housing. But it's about, well, how do we design those communities? How do we, do, how do we, how do we plan properly so that you avoid what you seem to be kind of indicating is one of the kind of biggest contributors, or at least is a contributor to one of the biggest public health problems we have, which is the obesity crisis? Well, I totally agree with that. But... The narrative is one which is anti-planning and the green belt is seen as the most you know sort of you know certainly the larger scale the most yeah. restrictive planning policy and that's contributed to a sort of anti-planning narrative that planners are the problem and their political masters of course um, but in fact um, planning in a positive sense is a very good thing just saying no to new developments, well, that works to an extent if you want to stop bad developments, but it doesn't enable good developments. So what we need is not less planning, but better, more proactive planning. And I think we can use, free up some greenbelt lands um, to build communities that are walkable, because I mean, this is the idea that this is why car-dependent, sort of diffuse, sprawling places are associated with obesity because you have to drive everywhere to do anything in these places. You can't, there's no sort of sensible walking distance that will get you to somewhere that you want to be. So when you bring things together, uh, um, then there's a good reason to walk. Um, uh, but, you know, the suburbs that we built in London, for instance, before the war, were very much enabled by the rise of personal motorised transports. Um, and the trouble is that we didn't really think ahead, and some of the patterns of development were incredibly poorly planned. You can take some of the roads that take you into London um, now, and you see these 1930s semi-detached houses just built along both sides of incredibly busy roads and you wonder what on earth were they thinking but of course back then traffic levels were much lower than they are now but they didn't think ahead because no one was really doing the thinking because no one was planning but there are examples peter of like smart suburban development communities which are being built in you know areas that we typically characterize as sprawl but they're being built in an inorganic way as sort of these contrived 
walkable city centers. I'm thinking yeah. about sort of the suburban areas surrounding Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. where there's, um, you know, a Rockville city center and a Reston town center and these communities that have been planned to be walkable within, even though you might be commuting to your yeah. place of work, which is far outside. Which is a really important point, because actually um, it's sort of no good to just say, well, we shouldn't extend further out of cities, because, you know, that's where most of the jobs are. You know, people want to live in areas where they can they can get to work. So, so surely we do need suburbs it's just that as you're saying Amanda it has to be in an intelligent way well so, so, well I mean London is a particular challenge because it's a it's a massive city but not that far from London we have smaller cities which are some of which are world centers for certain industries mm -hmm. um, Oxford and Cambridge are obvious examples those are really quite small cities on yeah. any by any reasonable standard there's no reason why those shouldn't get bigger. Um, but people will object to new developments if they think all they're going to get is just, you know, these sprawling, formless estates with pretty poor quality architecture, the sort of development that makes places worse. Well, I think development, the right kind of development, can make places better. And... This is what people used to assume back in Victorian times. Communities would compete for development um, because they assumed it equaled progress. Somewhere along the line, we've lost that faith. Um, but I think we can, we can um, recover it. And there are certain examples like Poundbury in, in Dorchester that Prince Charles was involved in, which are incredibly popular. Um, and we can do similar things um, and um, you know it's it's there it can be achieved but it needs the vision and the determination to do it or else we'll all be housed but fat well indeed okay. yes and we're getting that way <laughs> all right um, so the second thing we're going to talk about this week has to do with the tech industry which if you have been reading our website you know is frequently underneath our microscope and in Washington, D.C. this week was under the microscope, perhaps a more uh, intense one, with congressional hearings about the purchasing of Russian ads um, during election time on Facebook, and representatives from Twitter and Google were also there. Um, but this week, Peter has written about the upside of these big tech giants and some of the things that they are doing to improve our lives. Uh, and one of them is called Project Loon. What is Project Loon, Peter? I know, it's a fantastic name. Um, but it's actually very sensible, um, although quite visionary. The idea is that you use um, things that look like weather balloons, as far as, as far as I can tell, high altitude balloons that act as kind of mobile phone masts, um, cell masts, as you might call them, I suppose, in America. And um, what they do is um, extend the range of any masts that you've got on the ground. Um, and that's really useful in places where infrastructure is not there, um, so in the developing world. So the, the original vision was that you put up loads and loads of these balloons to create a sort of floating cell network. A cloud. Uh, yes, I suppose literally, it's almost literally a real cloud. but. Um, the thing is, though, that um, balloons, you know, they're hard to control. They get blown here and there. That's in the nature of balloon kind. 
Um, <laughs> so they had a big problem, is how, just how many balloons do you need to put up so that you can guarantee coverage in any particular area? Um, and that's really important when you're talking about massive areas like great swathes of Africa or wherever. You know, do you need that yeah. many balloons? So why is Project Loon making headlines right now? Well, um, because they're deploying them in Puerto Rico, which um, certainly had foam masts, um, but then along came Hurricane Maria and devastated all kinds of infrastructure, including communications. And one thing you really need to get an economy, to get um, uh, communities up and running again is is communication and you know lots of people on the American mainland wondering what on earth was going on and there was quite a political controversy over you know is, is the Trump administration doing enough for the recovery right. effort and it would really help if people could communicate was, but they're yeah. cut off. Was disaster response part of what Project Loon was designed to create or is it been sort of retrofitted to fit the needs that we find ourselves in now? Well, it's a project? system that can be deployed yeah. without hard permanent infrastructure. So it's, it, it is very suitable for um, disaster relief. Um, so yes, they're, they're, um, they're deploying it to, to the islands at the moment. Um, so, you know, that is a fantastic use of resources for a big tech company. And I think you mentioned, which I, I guess is one of the kind of key benefits of it being a big tech giant, is the use of algorithms to try and manage the balloon's movement. Is that right? And, and kind of lifting them to different altitudes and, and kind of ensuring, so you talked earlier about you can't very well control yes. uh, you know, something which is essentially, I guess, floating in the air. Well, yes, um, that's what but, balloons but, do. Exactly. Yes. Um, but actually, they have used used kind of, I guess, a form of AI algorithms to actually try and predict weather and movements and positioning of the balloons. Yeah, because the one thing you can control with a sophisticated balloon system is the up and down of the balloon, because. Um, you can sort of let out and let back in, you know, whatever it is that's keeping it afloat, you know, the ballast and what have you. So you can adjust all of those things. Um, and so you can pick your altitude. And then the clever thing they've worked out is that with enough weather data, you can move to the altitude where there happens to be winds blowing you in the desired which is this algorithm Direction. that they've, yes. they've developed. So they're piggybacking on the natural weather, but um, doing it with all of the data that they gather um, you know, through their various activities. I mean, um, I think so the, it's brilliant yeah, stuff. The interesting thing about talking about this right now is the type of sort of like technological moonshots that are enabled by the sort of data thieving, unregulated, money-making part of the business are the upside of tech that, you know, otherwise devastated Puerto Rico would not have access to cell phones and sort of weighing up how we feel about tech in this context where it is part of what we're fearing about the future, but it's also part of solving the problems that are going to be endemic to the future. It's a bit of a false trade-off though, isn't it? I mean, so, you know, you, you can be innovative, you can be um, exploratory, which I guess is is the kind of 
way of looking at these big tech giants that you know they're, they're not kind of incrementally trying to change things they're they're genuinely exploring new territory and and innovating in the very real sense of of kind of testing and learning and iterating but you can do that without evading tax you can do that without being you know a bit blurry about your privacy rules you know you you can you can do that in a way that's still ethical it's responsible it's behaving as a you know kind of appropriate corporate um organization so I think you can do both. I don't think it has to be, you know, well, if you want these innovative big tech giants, then you have to accept the the, the kind of, you know, somewhat monopolistic, aggressive behaviour that they have. I think you can do both. You can. And I think there is um, a sense in which actually giving big companies too much of a free ride in terms of the tax system and regulation and competition law and things like that actually discourages them from investing in innovation. Mm -hmm. Because if you can just make lots of money by playing the system, why should you? scooping up all the ads. Indeed, yes. Why on earth would you want to sort of um, risk your money on something as inherently uncertain as innovation? Um, So really, you've got to create all the incentives saying, we're not going to give you an easy way out. You're going to have to innovate your way to continued profitability. Um, so we really need to, we can squeeze them, and but encourage them at the same time, I think. Okay. Well, that sort of um, segues nicely to the last topic we're talking about today, which is something that I would have thought was uncertain, but you insist is a certainty, which is in the near future, human-operated cars will be banned and we will exclusively drive I guess we won't drive. We will be in fleets be of driven. driverless cars. I don't even know the grammar for talking about cars. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. I had been brought here by my car. <laughs> I guess, yeah. Um, we're going to have to come up with a new language. and We're going to have to really think things through because this technology is going to happen. Um, I was skeptical at first. I thought, well, yes, well, it is going to happen eventually, but is it going to be in 50 years' time? Well, apparently not. Um, they've already got working prototypes for at least semi-automated vehicles, and they're, believe it or not, even allowing journalists to test drive them. Um, and in, um, where was it, uh, New York Times, I think, um, one one such journalist, David uh, Leonhardt, um, describes his experience and says at one point I press <laughs> press the button and the car really does take over and this isn't on a on a freeway where it's relatively easy to drive but in a city center and it's doing things like stopping at traffic lights and all of this without any human input and um, so the prototypes are there and the car companies they're investing billions and you know they're fairly conservative um, schedules are that they'll be rolling these out, you know, middle of the next decade, um, if not earlier in some cases. Okay, well, so for listeners who haven't read this piece before, why does the existence of driverless cars mean that we are going to ban all human-operated cars? Walk me there. Okay, well, we won't get driverless cars unless they're very safe, right? And there's all sorts of reasons why we can expect them to be very safe, because unlike humans, they don't get drunk. Um, They don't get distracted by something that's happening with the kids on the back seats. 
Um, they don't drive too fast because they're um, they're late. Um, they're you know they're they're free from our human foibles. Um, once they've got the right algorithms, they follow them to, to the letter. They're always on point. They 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 do what they're meant to do in ways that humans <laughs> so often don't. So the um, reasonable expectation is that the number of deaths caused by computer-driven cars will be a tiny fraction of um, the number of deaths caused by human-driven cars. And there you get into the uh, rationale for saying, whenever possible, the computer must drive. Um, and it's how government regulates that that I think will be quite a big political issue in the next decade or perhaps a decade after that. How many deaths are we talking about looking at preventing? Um, in America, um, I think it's almost 40,000, something like 37,000 deaths. Um, <laughs> that's a vast amount and it's about the same or perhaps a bit more than the number of people that are killed um, by guns. So, you know, drivers are every bit as deadly as uh, gunmen in America. Yeah, well, historically, we haven't been too good at regulating those. What makes you think we're going to do any better with cars? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I guess one um, issue is insurance. Um, the government might not insist that you start um, turning over your car to its computer, but your insurance company might, because if the accident rate is that much lower, why wouldn't the insurance company insist on it? You know, when you get your house insured, they insist on all sorts of protections, um, like lockable windows and things like that. Um, it, it's exactly the sort of thing they would insist on. I love the idea of having a driverless car. <laughs> uh, so, well, it's like having, so it's the idea of having a driver. Well, sure, exactly right. You don't, you don't. There's no, none of the stress yourself. You don't have to worry about it. The other kind of idiots on the road that gets you all worked up. I think it's great, and I and I get the safety argument and and you know fascinating comparison between guns. But what really scares me is if I had a driverless car and it got hacked. So actually, there is still a safety question. So it might not be human error, but actually how do you ensure that yeah. the vehicle that's, that, that is on the road isn't hacked by someone, you know, even as a terrorism threat? That, that, I mean, that would be a powerful weapon. Well, your car is already full of computerized components. Don't tell me that. How? I got a 1992 <laughs> Dad's Shadow. I wind yeah, that's it not. up. It's safe. Couldn't those be hacked? I mean, you know, th this, this is something we're going to have to address generally because computerized systems or Internet of Things systems yeah. Yeah. are becoming sort of pervading our lives, you know, right down to, um, you know, we might have, um, well, already some people do have computerized locks on their front doors. That getting hacked or just that malfunctioning is pretty scary. So, well, medical that, chips, that kind of stuff. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, indeed, yes, and um, chips that you insert in your body, for goodness sakes. I mean, this the whole security challenge is vital, but we're going to have to face it anyway. Um, there's no avoiding it. Um, I mean, one thing I think is interesting is a lot of jobs are dependent on people being able to drive cars, and so we're going to see entire sectors 
of the current economy just sort of abolished or at least mm. become driverless. You can imagine the Teamster response in the US is, you know, millions uh, if the government turns around and says, yeah, we're just wiping your jobs out overnight. Well, apparently the... Um it, it, well, it's a, it's a hugely politically salient issue. Um, you know, those Trump um, Make America Great Again hats that you see um, that have become so iconic. Um, well, those apparently are not baseball caps, they are trucker caps. And really? that's. Apparently, apparently. Oh, God. Now, that is. You guys don't know anything. That is no um, accident. Um, I'm sure when they were designing the campaign props. They knew That's exactly what they were doing. Yeah. They knew exactly who they were appealing to. Um, and if you look at America, I think in most states of America, the most common occupation is truck driver. Yeah. Um, that's obviously a huge constituency there, and it will drive some real, literally, um, some real <laughs> political battles. Yeah. But remember, We've already lost millions of jobs. Yeah. But as automation a is a automation. Mu much bigger challenge yes. than this. But yeah. but the political uh, the political risk of of standing up and saying we're banning people from driving is is you know quite something to think about. It is yes. But when lives are at stake, when you hear horrific stories of some kid that was killed in ten years' time, but wouldn't have been if autopilot had been engaged then you'll see the political pressure coming from the other side as well i hate to be cynical about this but isn't this exactly the story we see with guns i mean more, multiple times a year a preventable gun death it is it is and in most countries we have con controlled guns all right well maybe we're looking for the uk to lead um that has been the unpacked show for us this week Join us next week, same time, same place, and you can even hit a little subscribe button on your screen right now, uh, and then we will be delivered to you. So thanks for listening. <laughs>